All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you from uh, Queens in New York City. This is the 19th of March, 2019. Uh, always like to remind you, I'm the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can go to sign up for that at miningstocks.com. We like to tout ChenPicks.com. That is, uh, what is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Uh, go to ChenPicks.com for that. And, of course, we also like Michael Oliver's letter, uh, OliverMSA.com. We'll be talking to Michael in just a moment. I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice of America business channel. And always will encourage you to go to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four. Taylor at gmail.com. Send along your comments, any any comments you might have about our show. Always welcome. Uh, I do uh, need to thank our sponsors for making this show uh, economically viable. Today's sponsors are Gold Mining Inc., Great Bear Resources, Klondike Gold, Novo Resources, Triumph Gold, Uranium Energy, and Merrimont Resources. Um well, we got uh, today today's show. I'm going to be talking uh, to uh, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Benjamin Weicker um, about his book uh, "Worshiping the State: uh, How Liberalism Became Our, our State Religion." Uh, I think a lot of the things that are going on economically, spiritually, socially, almost every direction you look comes from a change in the philosophy of government that is diametrically opposed to the founders of our country. And we'll be talking to Dr. Weicker about. Some of the historical figures, uh, intellectuals that have fed into this, what I think is a very destructive theme that's taking place in America now. Um, we're also going to be talking to Bob Moriarty in just a few minutes about a very interesting new company uh, that he is following. Actually, he's been following it for 15 years, but it's a company that he is really, really likes a lot. And um, it is one that I'm starting to take a look at myself, and uh, Bob will be with me after our first commercial break. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to have you. Uh, my most frequent guest. Nobody, uh, nobody comes close to the number of appearances you've made on this show, and that's out of popular request, and certainly my request, because uh, I find you so helpful to me in my investment decisions uh, as time goes on. Uh, in your in your weekend report, you talked quite a lot about the dollar. It, it occupied more of your thinking and spec and space uh, than usual in your letter. And you, you know, very often you do make comments about the dollar, but this time it seemed to be more important, and you gave it more importance anyway than most of the times. Um, and you headed up the article, uh, the weekend report, 
uh, with a title Major Forex, a category about to make noise. So it, so tell us why you're seeing the dollar now at this point in time as a very critical market to keep our eyes on. Yeah, it's both critical and uncritical, but on the critical aspect, uh, it's been dormant for, mm-hmm. uh, well, I'll put it this way, the dollar rally that, that followed a major drop, by the way, dropped from 104 down to 88 dollar index we're talking about, it then rallied back up into the high 90s. Uh, we reached, the dollar index reached last August up to almost 97, in fact, one decimal short of touching 97. If you mm-hmm. draw a line horizontal from August high of last year through the present, it oscillated a few percentage points either side of 97, meaning mm-hmm. nothing was happening. And that's mm-hmm. also reflective of the euro. Euro is 57% of the dollar index. So the two biggest currencies out there were dead, literally. I mean, you could hardly trade them. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, during that time, August of last year, where the dollar was at a high, a secondary high, uh, gold was just above 1160. Now, if you took the normal orthodox logic of, well, the dollar's got to uh, rise or fall t- to make gold move. So mm-hmm. if you want gold to go up, dollar, dollar's got to go down. Well, the dollar last Friday closed at 96.50, so mm-hmm. barely below the high right. was trading in August. If you'd have followed that logic, you would assume that gold would have gone sideways as well. Yeah. Instead, gold went from a low just above 1160 to a high several weeks ago at 1344. Uh-huh. So something didn't work in the orthodoxy there. Okay, right. now, take it even further back. <laughs> uh, by the way, I do think, we do think the dollar is about to roll over again from this rally, and we think it's close to the numbers that if you find it trading around 96 level when the second quarter opens up, which is less than two weeks away, that it will head south again probably hard. But mm-hmm. that's not a primary motivator for, for gold, obviously, because gold rallied 16%, mm-hmm. basically straight up since the August low, without any assistance whatsoever from a weak dollar. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, you can even take this logic further back to dis, you know, disprove the orthodoxy. Go back to February of 2016, so three, three years and a month ago, okay? the dollar index in that month was trading at 97. So you can draw a mm-hmm. line from February 2016 across the page, and you'll find ups and downs well above and below that level. But it's still beehived around that level now. Mm-hmm. That's three years and a month ago. Well, three years and a month ago is when uh, MSA, Momentum Structural Analysis, signaled a major annual momentum buy signal on gold. Right. And it came up from its bare lows. Bare lows were below 1045, and it came up to 1140, and we said, that's it, it's over, bull market. Mm-hmm. So now, circle that, 1140, we're now trading 1310, okay? Yep. And dollar index is where it was at that time. So uh-huh. again, even on a longer-term vista, using the dollar as your metric to judge mm-hmm. gold, up or down, is a waste right. of time. Okay? Yeah. Now, admittedly, I think it will help gold if the dollar does weaken, but it's a secondary uh, event. And I think that secondary event's about to occur. And that will, of course, wake up the orthodox folks who will say, well, you know, the dollar's getting weak, so we got to buy gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a little late, but that's fine. We mm-hmm. welcome them in. Yeah. Anyway. Well, the... In the meantime, of course, the equity markets remain pretty strong. They, 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 at least the price does. I have to think there's some smart money coming out of some of those other markets moving into gold. 
I mean, it's not as if there's a panic. It's almost as if gold is asleep. It's it's rising a little bit, but not too many people are paying much attention to it. And you, I guess, still believe that that's likely to happen until we see a price chart break out. At uh, what are you figuring that number is now, Michael? Well, th- there's a there's a trend line on the price chart. It's more or less flat. It goes back five yeah. years. Every yeah. rally high since late 2014 is up in the mid to upper 1300s. It's a gradually declining line. And I'd say right now, if you take out the recent rally high, which is 1344 several weeks ago, you take that out and the price guys are going to wake up and say, my gosh, this is a major bottom completed. Mm-hmm. They'll join in. And I also mm-hmm. suspect that at that time, that's when the dollar will be rolling over uh, to the downside. So those two will match up at that point in time. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, we're already bullish from much lower levels and uh, it's, it's great to have other people buy after you've already bought. <laughs> so, That's for sure. I do think the, and the structure on the price chart is very clear and it will excite a lot of investors and analysts uh, going back up through that mid-1300 level. And right. I suspect strongly that that's about to occur in the next few weeks probably. Well, certainly one of the reasons that I like your work so much is that uh, you're Momentum work usually does have people getting in before the masses do and getting out before there is a, a panic exit as well. So uh, that's what we like, Michael, and that's why you're here with us every week. I, I ask, you know, this equity market, though, it just does seem to me seem that uh, equities are defying the laws of gravity, huh? Well, I think you need to split the worldwide stock market into two, the emerging and the developed. And many uh-huh. people do that, but... Uh, the emerging markets, in fact, last week, let's say, for example, the S&P was up 2.88%, okay, and that would be the headline. Well, emerging market ETF was up 3.5%. Nobody, mm-hmm. Nobody's focused on that. Shanghai <laughs> was up, has been up uh, far stronger, Shanghai Composite Index. Uh, we're, we're positive, uh, with some conditionals, uh, on the emerging markets and, and Chinese market in relation to the developed markets. First off, mm-hmm. if you just stand back and look at Shanghai, for example, it's collapsed since the 2015 high uh, at 5,200, down into the 2,000s. Mm-hmm. It's right now about 3,000, okay? It's had a big drop. So a lot of people who don't like government stimulus, and the Chinese are back to stimulating again, they right. think that's intellectually uh, you know, a, a deficient way to move a stock market. And I agree with that. But... With a market that's been cut in half, and therefore is deflated to some extent, uh, those type of stimuli will work. Uh, They Mm -hmm. don't work, I think, after a 10-year bull market that's very aged, showing technical breakage, uh, so that if the central banks of the the emerging markets, excuse me, developed markets, uh, try a stimulus in in the near future, for example, if we get another another stock market wobble, uh, I don't think it's going to work. I think instead yeah. that, that river flow of money is going into value plays, namely mm-hmm. commodities, uh, further into gold, and into emerging markets. And emerging mm-hmm. markets, after all, reflect, to some extent, commodity action. And therefore, mm-hmm. that's why they're, to some extent, deflated, like commodities mm-hmm. are. So I think mm-hmm. that river flow is already underway. Gold is exhibiting it strongly, because it's not laying on its back. It's uh, near right. four or five-year highs. Uh, and I think that that it's subtle. The investor preference shift is subtle but determined. Uh, and we see it most in gold right now, but I think you're about to see it in a lot of the food commodities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're remaining very bullish on the food commodities. I remain bullish on that value category. I think it's like you've got a zip risk on the downside if you could own the cash markets. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, when they come alive, I think they'll come alive in a robust way. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, uh, by the I, way, this is not true with crude oil. It's one market I think I'd stick away from here. But uh, Right. And so let me just ask you with 30 seconds or so left here, Michael, you did uh, comment about a correlation between equities and crude, right? Oh, yes. Uh, the S&P. Fact, go back the last three or four years and overlay a, a, a crude oil futures chart on top of an S&P chart, you'll be stunned with the similarity. The crude oil is having a savage rally right now percent-wise. It's still way below the highs it made last yeah. uh, September, October, when the S&P was peaking, it collapsed right along with the S&P, and then it rebounded with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't trust crude oil at this point uh, to sustain or be wor- worth the investment. But I do think the food commodities are a place to be. Um, All right. They're very much lagged. And, and I think gold will continue to lead the commodity indexes. All right. Excellent. Well, I thank you once again, Michael, for being with us here. Thanks, Jay. Uh, your insights are always of great value to us. And, uh, again, folks, it's uh, OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, if you want to really take advantage of what Michael has to offer. You know, you get what you pay for. You're listening to his show. Uh, you're listening to this show. He's kind enough to share some of his ideas with you. Uh, but if you really want to take advantage of his uh, of his expertise, um, do what I do, get his uh, get his get his daily reports, almost daily. Anyway, Michael, right? Almost daily. All right, well, folks, folks, we do have to go to break now. Uh, Don't go away. Bob Moriarty will be with us to talk about a very interesting new uh, gold stock that I've just, he brought to my attention, and I'm watching it with great interest, and uh, I want to hear more about it, and I think you will, too, so don't go away. I'll be right back with, uh, I'll be right back with Bob Moriarty. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario, Canada. Recent drill results yielded an impressive 1,600 grams per ton gold over 0.7 meters near surface. GBR is fully funded to drill 300 plus holes this year. McEwen Mining is a significant shareholder following a $5.7 million investment as part of a recent $10 million financing. Visit greatbearresources.ca. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com 
Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really, be, I'm really glad to have Robert Moriarty with me once again. We'll call him Bob. Um, anyway, I've, I've been wanting to talk to Bob about his new book, Basic Investing in Resource Stocks, The Idiot's Guide. Uh, but uh, Bob keeps coming up with new, great new stories, ex- uh, exploration companies that are so exciting. We're going to postpone the discussion of his book uh, until next week sometime. Actually, I think we're going to have to do it uh, and, and post it at J. Taylor Media next week when we finally get around to talking to Bob about it. And then we'll put it on the live show when we have an opportunity. Um, but Bob, thanks for joining me again. Well, it's a pleasure to be back. It's a pleasure to talk to somebody in the south of France, where I suppose it's nice and sunny, and life is really good there, in the wine country, right? Uh, We are in the wine country, and it's a beautiful spring. It's early here. Yeah, good. Well, uh, what I want to ask you about is Arena. Arena. Do I pronounce that right? Uh, It's Arania. Arania, of course. The A-U threw me. Arania. Arena Resources, uh, traded in Toronto, ARU is a symbol, and you can buy it in the U.S. under the symbol AUIAF, 32.9 million shares outstanding, and I guess the stock is down like a lot of the gold shares today, it's at $3.30 Canadian, uh, so it's, uh, I guess it's a market cap of what, it's 80 million or so, probably, Um you know, Bob, I believe there's a, you're working on another book. Okay, so the book that I want to talk to you about, and we'll, hopefully we'll get to it next week, um, is uh, is The Idiot's Guide to Investing in Resource Stocks. And uh, maybe just give us a real quick um, summary of what it's about. Well, what I'm trying to do, and it's interesting because I went out and started doing some research And I realized that there's a lot of technical books and a lot of technical writing uh, about mining and about mining stocks, but there's very little basic information. Uh Uh, My whole theme and thesis is people have access to enough information that if they will use common sense and the Internet, they can make their own decisions. There aren't any gurus. There aren't any experts. There's just guys talking who would like to be considered gurus and experts. Uh, People have the ability to make money on their own judgment, and following gurus is a sure way to lose money. Uh, Yeah, I think you've written another book called Nobody Knows Anything or something like that. Is that sort of along the same ideas? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody knows anything. So before you pay Taylor a, a big fee for his uh, for his weekly and monthly newsletter, just realize you can do it on your own. Is that the message, Bob? Well, no, no, no. Uh, actually, it's exactly the opposite of that. We have more access to information now than at any time in history. Uh, and if you will figure out who knows what they're talking about, but uh, face it, Jay, there's probably 50 gold sites out there. Mm-hmm. And, and about 45 of them are Me Too sites talking about manipulation, conspiracies, uh-huh. naked short selling, comex defaults, and it's all bullshit. Yeah. Well, I've never really thought that I was any kind of a guru. I just work hard and try to convey information to people uh, that they might not have the time to, 
to drill down on themselves. That's what I try to do. And I know that you do that, too. You write some great reports at 321 Gold that people can access. And, of course, that's why I'm learning about this story today, Arena. Um, <laughs> you, Arena. Keep, you, you keep stumbling. I can't say the name, can I? Maybe it's I should learn to say a, the name a, of the company. Arena. Arena. You want to know the name because it's going to be a big hit. It's going to be a big one. Arena. If I got it? Yep. Okay. All right. So we, we said the name. Now we're on to the story. Um, let's, let's talk about this. Uh, it's got a project in Ecuador called the Lost Cities Project. And this is a story that's very rich in history. It dates back to the days of the Spanish Empire when the Spaniards were calling the shots in Ecuador and elsewhere in South America. Can you talk a little bit about the history of this story and how Arania happened to get involved? Well, yeah, it's a really it's a fascinating story that I've been part of for about 15 years. Uh-huh. Now, most people don't know this, but there's a lot of things that I do that are totally invisible to the readers of my site. We got started in the summer of 2001 because I saw a bottom in silver and gold and gold shares. Mm -hmm. There was some geologist who had all these grandiose ideas uh, named Keith Barron, who, who started a website in September of 2001 called Straight Talk on Mining. And, mm-hmm. and I, I read its pieces, and I thought, this guy really sounds interesting, and I would like to repost it. So we got in touch with him mm-hmm. and said, hey, you got some good stuff, and you're not getting a lot of exposure, and we mm-hmm. would like to repost your pieces. And he said, sure. And we've been friends ever since then. So I knew Keith Barron long before Frute del Norte. So he goes on to stake an area of Ecuador, comes up with one of the best gold finds in the last 25 or 30 years, and and literally retired rich. Mm -hmm. But nobody knows this. Years ago, before Aurelian Resources, where he made all its money, Mm -hmm. he had been doing research into these lost cities. There Mm -hmm. were there were five major gold mines in Ecuador run by the Spanish. This goes back to the 16th century. The Spanish were monsters. and They abused the Indians, and the Indians revolted in two of the cities, killed all the Spanish, and, and gradually, over hundreds of years, people had forgotten that there were two cities with major gold mines in them. Well, Keith was down there literally studying Spanish, and a geologist friend of his said, you need to take a look into this. He did that before he started Aurelian. So it's not a new project. It's an old project. He came to visit us in Grand Cayman, I don't know, what, 10 years ago, Barbara? Mm-hmm. And and. He talked about this. Now, here's what's funny, Jay, and, 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 and you got to be honest with me. If a geologist came up to you and said, hey, there's these two lost cities of gold in, in Brazil, yeah. and I've mapped to them, you know, how interested are you? you you'd think this guy's a fruitcake. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, if, if, but, of if, course, 
but but of course we should mention that uh, uh, we should mention that, that that Keith Barron is Dr. Keith Barron. He's he's quite an he's quite an academic as well. I mean, not an not a not a professor, but he's a very strong intellectual. So it's if you knew his background, you might take him a bit more seriously than you know. I, no, I guess. no, no, you wouldn't. No, maybe there's, not. There's hundreds of PhDs in geology. Okay. And, oh. and, and the only guy who could ever convince me, hey, this is interesting, would be Keith Barron. Because Keith Barron just happens to be the expert on Ecuador. He literally opened that country up to mining exploration. Everybody who's in Ecuador owes something to Keith Barron. He put now, Keith- we, we should mention, perhaps, Bob, that the Fruta del Norte is quite a project, isn't it? I think something like... 4.6 million ounces are, are expected to be produced over 15 years, and it's nearing production now, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's Lundin mining. It's nearing yeah. production, and there's about, I think, 12.7 million ounces total. Uh, uh-huh. uh, so it, it's a really big project, and it's a major project. But let's go back to the Twin Cities. Yes. Uh, Keith came to us 10 years ago, said, I've got this really goofy idea. You know, I know where these two cities are. And I went, yeah, Keith, that's really interesting. But the more he talked about it, the more I thought, you know, this might not be that goofy. Uh, And then Ecuador literally was shut down for about Mm -hmm. 10 years because the government got greedy. And he was just waiting until he could do something, and then they opened the company country up for exploration again. He went in and staked a big area. So he's done a lot of technical work. He is the biggest shareholder. He owns over 50% of the stock. He supported this com- company for 10 years, okay? So I hope he makes a ton of money out of it. Now, it's one of those good news, bad news stories. He's done a ton of exploration. Now, nothing in what he's found suggests to me that he's found the twin cities of gold. Mm -hmm. That's the bad news. Mm -hmm. The good news, and there is some good news, is that he's found 16 major targets. Mm-hmm. And this is Keith Barron, Dr. Keith Barron, we're talking about, who is absolutely a genius, absolutely understands Ecuador. He's drilling now. There will be results coming out probably in two to three months from now. And he's going to hit something on any or all of those 16. But I will say People should go to the website and they should read the story of the lost cities because Keith Barron is absolutely the best communicator in the mining business. And he tells a fascinating story about these twin cities. Now, I don't give a damn personally if he finds the twin cities or not. Okay, I want the company to be successful. I'm a shareholder. But the story of the loss of the cities and and then their possible rediscovery is just absolutely fascinating. Well, and I'm reading his uh, pr- his latest press releases. He's not unhappy about what he's finding so far in exploration. I mean, he's come out come across some very significant copper values and um, I guess secondary uh, enriched 
copper areas and some silver and I think also some base metals. There hasn't been much of anything in gold so far. I think he noted in one of his press releases that gold is still the target, the primary focus, but so far uh, there's some promising some some promising copper mineralization, but you say 16 targets, so they actually started drilling now. I wasn't aware of that, Bob. Oh, yeah. They they started, I think they started on the uh, 3rd of March. And, and, and he talks a lot about scout holes. Are, are these, uh, is he drilling for structure, or is he drilling for, is he actually hoping to hit some, some juicy, I mean, he's hoping, but does he expect to hit some juicy mineralization? Well, uh, I, I personally, and, and he's a very low-key guy, so yes. he's, he won't say that, but I'll say it. Uh, it. He's got 16 targets where the numbers are literally off the chart, and he's going to find something interesting. Uh, right now, the company has about $100 million market cap, and mm-hmm. that's absolutely unusual for a, for a company that has never put a drill hole in the ground. Uh, that's the Keith Barron effect, and it's absolutely worth it. it it's going to be interesting. This the, the share structure is very tight. There's not very many shares out. He is better at community relations and dealing with the locals than anybody I know in the mining business. So yeah. my my second book, the, the one about uh, basic investing in resource stocks, I think what's 110 pages. My third book will be advanced investing in resource stocks, and it's going to be two or three pages. And I'm going to say, stay away from this guy, and stay away from this guy, and stay away <laughs> from this guy. And if you see anything by Keith Barron, buy into it, or, or Quentin Handy, or David Lowell, uh-huh. uh, Peter McGaw, uh, throw money at it. And mm-hmm. that, that can be my advanced investing in resource stocks book. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so important, isn't it, to um, pay attention to who you're dealing with. Uh, I see also... Yeah, I mean, we should, as I said, there's it's just under 33 million shares, and if Keith Barron owns 50%, obviously, not much stock out there. If uh, if he hits some juicy numbers, I would imagine it could make a nice run, selling at 3.30 today down 40-some cents, so it might be a good time to take a peek. Um, all right, so uh, anything else you, you want to say about this story? Uh, summing up, you're really excited about it, I guess, uh, in large part because of the jockey but also some promising geology that they're finding so far. So, I mean, he would expect to find the gold in the Lost Cities. That's the target, right? Uh, That's the target. However, if he finds, you know, five or six hundred million dollars worth of uh, copper, I'm sure that would be acceptable. Oh, yeah, we'll take it, won't we? Well, I'll take it when I own the shares. I don't yet, but I'm taking a real good look at it, thanks to you, Bob. And and folks, uh, 321 Gold... Com. Go there. Bob writes about a lot of stories that he picks up on, shares his insights with you, and um, thanks for sharing them with us today, Bob. And we'll look to catch up with you on your book, the, the one for idiots. Uh, you know, I could could probably use that book. So anyway, thanks so much for being with us, and uh, we'll talk to you again very soon, hopefully next week. Uh, it's a real pleasure, Jay. Thank you very much. All right. All the best to you. Well, folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. I'm going to have Dr. Benjamin Weicker with me. He's the author of the, of Worshiping the State, How Liberalism Became Our State Religion. So I'll be right back with Dr. Weicker right after the commercial break. 
Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon, with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Uranium Energy Corp, NYSE, American UEC, is America's emerging uranium producer. The company is 100% unhedged and has fully permitted and licensed processing plant and production-ready uranium assets in South Texas and Wyoming. With a rising uranium spot price, UEC is positioned to lead and supply to the U.S. uranium requirements ahead. Visit uraniumenergy.com and on Twitter at Uranium Energy. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the very first time Dr. Benjamin Weicker. Dr. Weicker uh, is a husband and father of seven children. Uh, He graduated from Furman University with a BA in political philosophy. He has an MA in religion and a PhD in theological ethics, both from Vanderbilt University. Uh, He taught at Marquette University, then St. Mary's University, Thomas Aquinas College, and is now Professor of Political Science and Director of Human Life Studies at Franciscan University in Ohio. Uh, During these many years of teaching, he offered a wide variety of courses in political philosophy, philosophy, theology, history, the history and philosophy of science, the history of ethics, the great books, uh, Latin, and even mathematics. Dr. Weicker is a senior fellow at the Veritas Center for Ethics and Public Life, Franciscan University, and director of human life studies at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. He has published 12 books. Uh, he is also the writer and host of EWTN's Saints and Scoundrels show that uh, I believe airs twice a week on that channel. And I learned to know of Dr. Weicker thanks to a book handed to me by my friend, Dr. Alan Trefiason. He's an economist who works for the city of New York and attends the same church as I attend in AOC's district here in Queens. The book that impressed me so much that Dr. Weicker wrote is titled Worshiping the State, How Liberalism Became Our State Religion. What I found so fascinating about the book was that it explains the underlying intellectual reasoning that I believe is destroying all that our founding fathers gave us in terms of our religious freedom, personal liberties, and personal responsibilities. Dr. Weicker makes a very strong case that America is replacing the basic values upon which which our country was built to a religion of paganism much akin to what pre-Christian Rome experienced 
that can only lead, in my view, to death and destruction of our country. Uh, so because of this book, I think it's so important in helping us understand what we're seeing taking place in America right now. I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Weicker to this show for the first time. Thanks so much for joining me, Dr. Weicker. Uh, it is my pleasure. It is my pleasure to have you, and I'm so happy to know that the last time, I know the last time we tried to have you on the show, you were having some severe health issues that, uh, thank, thanks be to God, you're fine now and you're doing well, and as you say, you're upright, and I guess you're active in producing that show on WTN, uh, on the, uh, the the station, the channel that you're on? Uh, yes. Saints and Scoundrels? down to film uh, a little over, I guess around, no, it's a little less than a month, actually. Yet uh-huh. another episode. Wonderful. And uh, what, what might that be about? Uh, this one is uh, where we have St. Joan of Arc uh-huh. meet uh, Maximilien Robespierre, the, the nasty... A cat of the French Revolution. So they're My goodness. they're going to meet about what one should do about France. Well, that should be interesting. I'm I'm <laughs> definitely going to start watching that show uh, now that I know that you're attached. That you and I think uh, Saints and Scoundrels is the name of one of your books, if if I remember right. Is that right? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, uh, I I put one out uh, that that allows people to go deeper into each one of the shows. Uh, yeah. So that so it's kind of a companion a volume to those shows. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Well, so um, the philosophy of modern-day liberalism, I mean, this is what we're hearing about liberalism, and it seems to be picking up a lot of speed right now in the the political discourse, or if there's any discourse at all, but the the thinking of what we're hearing so much about radical liberalism, it's sort of called now, um, it seems to have overtaken the founding fathers' desire for limited government. So government is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, perhaps could you describe liberalism or define it? Uh, tell us uh, your definition of it as you've discussed in the book. Yeah, that's a good place to begin because there are too many definitions. And when I was researching and writing the book, I found that, that was one of the, the really irritating things. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people have so many definitions that they can't get any clarity. So here is my definition which I think is the proper one, uh, it actually uh, goes back not 10 years or 50 years or 100 years, but 500 years. And mm-hmm. it is a modern movement which has two aspects, aspects to it from which we get the term uh, liberalism as in liberate. So it seeks to liberate human beings from the hold that Christianity has mm-hmm. on society. So it's, mm-hmm. it's originally aimed, and again, this is 500 years ago, not 50. It's originally mm-hmm. aimed to remove the, the, the uh, effects of Christianity, which it considers bad. So it wants to be liberated from Christianity. And at the same time, and connected to this, uh, it wants to be liberated for life in this world. That is, freed from any notion that you have an eternal soul, freed from any notion that you have a God watching over there, freed from any notion that you need to worry about anything other than this worldly bodily existence. And so these two aspects together are what really defines liberalism and all its you know, tributaries that come from this mainstream. Mm-hmm. So there's really, um, there's really no existence outside of the four dimensions of time and space, I guess, in their thinking. This is it. That's exactly right, yeah. And, and, and so since the focus, uh, to get back to an earlier point you made, since the focus is now entirely on this world, liberalism has to put all its chips, as it were, on this world. And if you're going to do that, 
well, then you're going to um, you're you're going to give a whole lot of power to political entities because right. you look around and you say, well, there's no God. I mean, what's the closest thing to a God around with that much power? And it's the state, and that's the source of the state then receiving the kind of devotion that you would have uh, had before in Christianity towards God. You want the state to give you all the things in this world that you only prayed for in the next when you were a Christian. I guess um, maybe this sort of makes some sense in that uh, it's almost as if the far left is asking for miraculous things from the state. It's asking for things beyond what any human being would ever be able to provide. I mean, the New Green Deal and so forth is so far out of whack with reality. And yet, it's almost by faith that a lot of these young people seem to be jumping on the bandwagon as if they're placing their faith in humanism and in human beings that might be able to do these things for us. Yeah, and, and, and notice that. I, I love that. I, I had to give a little giggle on that one. You know, it is by faith. They have a faith. It's, it's a strange how it yeah. takes the place of religion in this because it's saying, or Christianity is saying, well, we believe there's going to be an apocalypse uh-huh. And it's it's an environmental apocalypse, and uh, yeah. we need, therefore, to give the state the kind of power that you would give God uh-huh. <laughs> from the New Testament in regard to the apocalypse. We need it to save us from this, and the only way that can that can occur is if you give it enormous amounts of power, and then, as you're noting, um, almost an unlimited budget so that you can borrow on astounding deficits. Uh, mm-hmm. That is uh, the the Green New Deal, as you point out. You know, there's no real real top to it. It looks like um, no. you can't spend enough money, and of course, the result of that will be um, you know almost immediate economic collapse, which isn't mm-hmm. very pleasant from what I've heard. Yeah, we 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 almost got a taste of it in 2008, 2009. But I can kind yeah. of understand. Uh, Dr. Weicker, one of the, my pet peeves as people that listen to this show know over the years is that when we debased the currency and decided that we didn't, wouldn't use gold anymore for money, but we could just create money out of nothing, endless mm-hmm. amounts of it, it, and as an empire, we've been able to get away with that for quite some time. So I can understand how people start to think more and more and put their faith and their trust in government because it seems as though we've been able to do all these things uh, and then they, some people look around and see some people getting extremely rich, and they get envious and angry, and it's it just seems to be. But you make the point that actually liberalism is a religion, and I think maybe we've touched on it a little bit in this discussion so far, that faith issue. Mm-hmm. But religion, I mean, the United States, our Constitution, forbid state backing of a religion. It was supposed to be agnostic with respect to – I mean, the state was not supposed to take a position or support any religious ideas, and yet that's exactly what our country is doing with liberalism. All the maybe the, the liberal ideas, the, the policies that have been put into place, especially from the left, um, have you would say that's exactly. I mean, so maybe explain how it, liberalism is a religion, really. Well, here's what happens. I mean, you can actually look at it in other countries, and worshiping the state focuses on ours, but you could follow it in France, you could follow it in England, yeah. you could follow it in Germany. You know, there's, unfortunately, it's not contained within our borders, uh, so it's a, sort of a modern phenomenon. And again, when you put, when you, when you say there really isn't anything beyond this life, you're yeah. going to, uh, you're, you're going to create uh, a kind of a vacuum. And you're going to want the things that people wanted from God, and except mm-hmm. your God is going to be the government. 
Uh, yeah. That's why I, I include that wonderful G.K. Chesterton uh, quote at the beginning where he yes. says, uh, wherever the people do not believe in something beyond the world, they will worship the world, but above all, they will worship the strongest thing in the world. Yeah, and absolutely. so people are literally putting what, could, what Christianity could only um, offer, uh, they're putting that into the hands of the state. Mm-hmm. So they're wanting to save us from every kinds of, uh, of, of disaster uh, when the, the state is just filled with more sinful people. And that's a mm-hmm. fundamental Christian tenet. You just, mm-hmm. When you add more power to just basically sinful people, you end up with really powerful sinful people, um, and then you're running on a deficit on top of that. So, um, you know, the kind of hope that you see in the Green New Deal isn't all that different. Now, I know this will sound a little strange from the kind of hope uh, that people put in, you know, the fascist party into socialism, mm-hmm. uh, into communism, um, into any kind of entity which they thought could solve all of our problems, rather than, as what you're pointing out, a notion of limited government where the government's really not supposed to solve all your problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you yourself are supposed to deal with your own problems and make the best of things, but your ultimate hopes aren't in this world and this government, but in in heaven and in a life to come. Mm-hmm. I would like to uh, to move on to some of the some of the extremely well known philosophers that have shaped the thought of uh, of America of of the left of the liberals liberalism. Let's say, um, and and you know, as you were describing some of what you were talking about earlier, it sounds like. This sounds exactly like what we're hearing now, what liberalism believes, what all our youth are basically learning in the universities. I would like to think that the university where you teach might present at least a different perspective, a Christian perspective. It um, does, yeah. Good. You're right. At almost every university now, um, you know, this is funny because I'm teaching a course in modern political philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, And, you know, I would think, I, I sort of, wanted to think by the end of the, you know, the last century that you really didn't have to teach Marx anymore, except as yeah. kind of an historical thing. Well, that, yeah. that's not true. You have to teach him now, so people have to be aware of him, because it takes, an, it takes new forms, and it's found yeah. in the universities under a different name called postmodernism. Yeah. Postmodernism, post-modernism is, is just kind of a revival of, of Marxism under a different name uh, with slightly mm-hmm. different, uh, you know, uh, aspects given to it. But mm-hmm. you're right, that's what the young people are picking up when they go to college. Mm-hmm. And so the not funny thing is we have government subsidized a teaching of Marxism and socialism in the universities. That's These incredible. kids go through it, they learn it, they come out with a bunch of debt. Mm-hmm. Think of that connection. So yeah, government-subsidied university education, where they come out with a bunch of debt. Well, those and now people are yeah. young people with a bunch of debt. How ripe are they going to be for that notion that you know, you know, we we need to we're the proletariat. We need to uh, we need to take back over the system and and have a kind of communism, beginning with free education, universal yeah. income, you know, medical, and so on and so on and so on. They're just going to add all the things that they don't have because right. they're scared of their own debt. Right, yeah. So it's it's sort of just built into the system now to a great yeah. extent. To a greater extent. Well, could we talk a little bit about some of these key philosophers? Um, sure. Starting starting with Machiavelli, 
and the Prince, which he's so well known for, uh, 1513, he published that. But up until that point of time, talk maybe take a minute to talk about the relationship between the church and the state in the Middle Ages after Rome tur- turned Christian, and then from then on until what the like the like the 14 middle of 1400s or so with Machiavelli. Yeah, what you have uh, the uh, and, and this this begins to become well. If we go all the back to the time that the church and the, is within the Roman Empire, the state was at best indifferent to Christians and at worst constantly persecuting them. So uh-huh. there couldn't be any union of the church and the state. There was actually a complete antagonism. But once the emperors became Christian, the question was, well, what relationship does the emperor have to the church? Mm-hmm. And what the West said was they cannot unite that the imperial power and the church power. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't do that because you're going to ruin both the state and the church. The church mm-hmm. will become worldly if it becomes political, and uh-huh. if, the, uh, if you have the state using religion for its own purposes, that'll, that'll debase it uh, just as it did in ancient Rome. So mm-hmm. that, was this, that was supposed to be the position. You want a distinction between the church and state, but not a rabid separation like we have now, where you just exclude Christians from any kind of public voice. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. leading up to the um, uh, up to Machiavelli, and Machiavelli is uh, I was hinting a little earlier. He's at, at, you said beginning of the 1500s. Uh, he is the the one of the first people that argued that Christianity was a mistake. We need uh-huh. to liberate ourselves from Christianity, and we need to liberate ourselves for this world. The Roman pagans had it right. Christianity has ruined us. So Machiavelli is really the first liberal because he wants to liberate us from Christianity and liberate us uh, for living just in this world. And that's where we get the famous Machiavellian principles that, well, there really isn't any God, so you don't need to worry about good and evil. You just do what you have to do as a prince. Uh, mm-hmm. And the only good power is the effective power, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there was a place for the church. I mean, I think it was Machiavelli that, that, that felt that it's, it's okay to let people who want to believe, who want to be, believe in Christianity, let them go ahead and do that. They might actually be better servants. They might actually be better workers. Was that yeah. Machiavelli? Yeah. yeah, that's Machiavelli. So this is also part of Machiavellianism. He didn't believe in God. But he are but in, in in his book written for the prince, it's not written for everyone else. It's just written for princes. Uh-huh. He's telling the princes, look, this is what the pagans knew. They knew religion was all bunk, but they also knew you needed it to control the masses. You had to use it to control people, so you had to pretend that you were religious, so that they would more easily obey you, and you could use belief in the gods to control them politically. And so that's a Roman pagan, actually a Roman or, or, or pagan Greek idea too. Uh, and Machiavelli revives it. So at the same, well, one the same time, he himself doesn't believe in God. He doesn't want the prince to believe in God. Belief in God becomes a useful instrument for the state, mm-hmm. but it, that means it's under the state. In the same way that, say, at the basically almost the same time, Henry VIII made himself the head of the church. 
that means it was a state church, and the people that worked for the church worked for him. Right, and so if you served the if you served the king, you were serving God in essence. That's what they they told the people to believe the British folks, right? Uh, exactly, and and of course, I mean, we're aware of uh, being in America that that was the key thing that um, that the founders didn't want. That mm-hmm. is, the, it wasn't that they you know you're not, you're not looking when you're looking at the founders, you're not just looking at ten or twelve you know guys who were hanging around the Constitutional Hall. You're looking at the people of the United States, and they believed that you needed Christianity, but what they didn't want was uh, exactly what happened in England, where you have the political king or the political ruling class using religion as an instrument. They wanted Christianity to be free of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what our founders wanted. And, and Thomas Hobbes, of course, was a big influential uh, intellect of that time for King Henry VIII and the Leviathan, I think, was the name of his, of his great work. Yeah, that, this is about a hundred years after Henry VIII. What he gives, he gives, he gives the Henry VIII type rule in England, uh, sort of the metaphysical and uh, philosophical support that it needed. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. again, he's following Machiavelli. He, he's an atheist. But what he wants to set up is the absolute rule of the king who has absolute control of the church. Mm-hmm. So uh, Hobbes just simply says outright, you know, the king can decide even what the attributes of God are. The king can decide how many books, if any, are in the Bible. The king can decide yeah. completely every aspect of religion. Yeah. And again, Hobbes' only goal in this is to make political power absolute so that Christianity couldn't interfere with it. All right, real quickly, because we're running out of time already, unfortunately. Spinoza, uh, 1632 to 1677, uh, what did he contribute to this uh, return to paganism? Well, he uh, one of the most pagan things that he did uh, was he, he got around the difficulty with Christianity being any kind of conflict with the state or with this life by simply identifying God with nature. So mm-hmm. you don't have a God who's over nature. You don't have a creator God. You simply make God and nature identical. Uh-huh. And what he does in this is simply um, uh, do away with any conflict in such a way that the people who rule the state are able to actually say quite literally, that the state is a manifestation then of God, because, yes. well, God is nature, nature is God, we're part of nature, we make the state, the state's very powerful, therefore the state is God. And so what you yeah. have then is a, a very odd situation where you're setting up for later thinkers like Hegel and so on, where, where, you're, where you're deifying the state because you've deified nature. Mm-hmm. Isn't that, uh, fits in very well, I would think, with the, uh, the New Green Deal or whatever. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, in other words, they're, they're, yeah, they're looking at nature as something that's more important than anything. Right, um, exactly. And, and I, I wrote another book called In Defense of Nature, saying, well, no, you have to get the right understanding of nature. We don't want to pollute it. We won't, don't want to destroy it. But you also don't want to deify it. And so there's, uh, there's Rousseau. We, we just, we're running out of time. We've got less than two minutes left here yet. So just in, in sort of summing up, where, where is this taking us? You talk about a return to paganism. Can you maybe give some examples of paganism and how it's creeping into our society? My thought was right away that now we're legalizing infanticide. That certainly seems exactly. to be something. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if New York State and then Virginia. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and if you look in a trajectory, it goes all the way back to the, the first century where Christians were born into the Roman Empire, and you looked at the Roman Empire itself, you would find abortion, infanticide, contraception, euthanasia, homosexuality, pedophilia, um, and also gay marriage. I mean, you find yeah. the whole thing. There's nothing yeah. around now that wasn't back there then, but the difference is that Christian, when Christianity uh, took hold of society after evangelization, those things disappeared. Uh, I mean, not completely, but they certainly were understood to be these were the wrong things, and then they were yeah. made illegal. And mm-hmm. now that you see uh, the de-Christianizing of culture, you just mm-hmm. find yourself back in the returning back to it. world. Yeah, returning back to it. Well, you know, we're we're just we're really out of time. What what do we have to look forward to here, and what what do we need to do to change things? Well, as I tell my students, um, what you need to do first of all is don't just do something stand there. That is, it doesn't do any good to react if you don't have a deep understanding of what the problems are. And that's right. one of the reasons they're worshiping the state. It's as much for people on the left as it is on the right who don't really understand what's the issue. Uh-huh. And so first you've got to get the understanding before you go plowing ahead. Uh, and then realize that, of course, if, if the deconstruction of Christianity is what got us into this situation now, well, then we have a really strong need to re-evangelize. Um, And, you know, it doesn't seem like anything else can save us, certainly not the state. So we need to stop putting our our chips on the state, saying, well, this is the thing that has to save us. The Supreme Court has to save us. Congress has to save us. Well, how about just having Jesus save us and evangelizing the culture again, because that's what uh, made a Roman pagan culture into a Christian culture, uh, you know, 1,500 years ago? Absolutely, and it's pointed out very well in the book. I can't recommend this book enough, Worshipping the State, How Liberalism Became Our State Religion. I think it explains everything about how things are turning out right now in America. And we thank you very much for being with us, Dr. Weicker, and I hope we can do it again sometime in the not-too-distant future. So thank you very much. Well, folks, that is all the time we have this week. Uh, Next week, Andrew McGuire, Chris Taylor of Great Bear Resources, Michael Oliver back with me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol G-O-L-D on the TSX and G-L-D-L-F on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. 
The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com.